Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church Lagos. We hope this sermon answers the doubts or questions that you have about the gospel, its relevance to your life, and the ever-evolving culture around us. Our vision is to see the city of Lagos and beyond renewed by the gospel, and to make that happen, we need your support. You can do this by rating this podcast, following us, and giving through the Give tab on our website, citychurchlagos.com. Thank you for your generosity. We pray this sermon impacts you positively with the gospel. So at the end of this reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you be kind and respond, thanks be to God. So let's do this. Ezra 4, 1 to 24. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God. And have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, the Lord an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 7. And in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam, Mithredath, Tabil, and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramaic script and in the Aramaic language. Rehum, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, together with the rest of their associates, the judges, officials, and administrators over the people from Persia, Europe, and Babylon the Elamites of Susa, and the other people whom the great and honorable Ashurbanipal deported and settled in the city of Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates. This is a copy of the letter they sent to him. To King Artaxerxes, from your servants in Trans-Euphrates, the king should know that the people who came up to us from you I've gone up to Jerusalem 
and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Verse 13. Furthermore, the king should know that if the city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid. And eventually, the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace, and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we're sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. In these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place with a long history of sedition. That is why the city was destroyed. We informed the king that if the city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in Trans-Euphrates. Verse 17, the king sent his reply to Rehum, the commanding officer, Shimshai, the secretary, and the rest of their associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates. Greetings! The letter you sent to us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order and a search was made and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of Trans-Euphrates and taxes, tribute and duty were paid to them. Now, issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of royal interests? As soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rehum and Shimshai, the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. <clears throat> Thus, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill. Until the second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. This is the word of the Lord. us. Let us ask him to fix our minds. Let us ask him to fix our wandering hearts even right now. Ask the Lord for focus. But ask the Lord that the Spirit will do something powerful and great. Lord, we ask, O oh God, for enlightenment. We ask, O oh Lord God, for power. As we sang, O oh Lord, today we said we wanted to see you. Open the eyes of our hearts. Help us to see you high and lifted up. Help us to see you risen and glorified. And in so doing, O oh God, pour out your power and your love. Pour out your power and your love. Lord, pour out your power and your love this morning. 
As your words, O oh God, are uttered out, let there be yokes that are broken. Lord God Almighty, empower your people to do your work so that we will never be stopped despite the opposition that comes against us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Welcome again if this is your first time for joining us. Um, as you may know, I want to announce to you that Japan season is upon us again. We are, in, we are in July, all right? We are in July, so I'm sure we can expect more. A lot of people will be getting in favor of God. And if you are one of those people that are scared of giving me the dreaded call, don't worry. Don't worry. I already know it's going to happen. So just let me know. And honestly, for those who are um, having plans to travel, the Lord will, will, will go with you. And the Lord will make you flourish wherever you want to go. Amen? Now, going wherever you want to go and flourishing is really dependent also on being in the right place. You have to go to the right place. You have to jackpot to the right place. How many of you know you have jackpot to the right place? Uh, don't, no, you don't know. It's not a trick question. It's not. I'm trying to, let me help you. For instance, one place you don't want to jackpot to is, it's not Canada, it's not. I'm not talking, it's not about weather now. One place you don't want to jackpot to is Seattle. Seattle in the U.S. Seattle. Like, why Seattle? <laughs> I will help you. I help you. But before I go into that, let me ask a question. How many of us here in this church, just raise your hand, if you like to live with cats in your house? Anybody? You like cats inside your house? Eh? Ah. Cats, cats. You know cats. Oh, look, boo. Cats, cats. Uh, hands raised where I had. No, I know Delmo will be there. Bestie will be there. Tommy, wow, okay. I fool me. All right. So, so like, like this, like this. If the cat is very small. Not black. Black cat? No. Alone. Right? Okay. How many of you would like to live with dogs inside? I'm not talking about cage or outside. Dogs inside the house. Okay. A few more people. A few more. But the vast majority of us said they don't want to. Why? Because you see, for us, animals are not just simply inconveniences or weirdos. They are enemies. Now, let me tell you. If you go to Seattle, do you know that in Seattle, in 2013, a study was released in Seattle that of the households that are in Seattle, 30% of them have cats living in them. 25% of them have dogs living in them. And wait for it, 20% of them have children living in them. There are more households with cats and with dogs than there are children in Seattle. In fact, by 2020, it was estimated that seven, over 7 out of 71%, over 7 out of 10 households had a living pet. Now, if... 55% of that is cats and dogs. What are the other 16%? Some people are already deleting Seattle from as a tourist destination, let alone as a jackpot spot. Let God guide you. Because for us, animals are not just inconveniences or weird things. They are enemies. I remember visiting a friend of mine in Yenogua in 2006. Her sister was praying in the room. As me and my friend were talking, the sister came and said hi to me. Immediately, she spotted the wall gecko. And this is what she said. She said, eh? Where did you come from? Who sent you? Fall down and... You don't say fall down and die to something that is weird. You fall down and die to enemies. And somebody will say something like, this is the problem with Nigerian Christianity. We see enemies everywhere. And you are correct. It's an error to see enemies everywhere. But paraphrasing T.S. Lewis, there is another twin error, which is not to see enemies anywhere. We have enemies. This is what this passage introduces. Immediately, it says that when the enemies of Judah, we have enemies. 
And some of us may say, no, I'm a thinking Christian. I like to join. I don't get into all this enemies kind of stuff. I just like to read my Bible, read my Bible. You like to read your Bible. Guess what? Okay. How many times do you think the word foe, foes, enemy, or enemies, any of those words, how many times do you think they occur in the Bible? I will tell you. You don't know. Over 500 times. 504 times. Turn to your neighbor and say, we have enemies, of those 504, 55% of them is just the word enemies. Not enemy. Your boss will say, I'll talk about your enemy, Lord. That, that is, you have enemies. You say, well, well, you know, maybe because a lot of those occurrences are maybe from doctrinal passages or historical passages of the Bible. I am talking about, I have a problem with the experiential sense of enemies. Experiential. That a lot of people are seeing enemies here and they have a lot of problems with that. Can I tell you, if you are saying that, that what is the most experiential book of the Bible? Where you can see people's lives, what is going on in their lives, not history or all that. Do you know what it is? It's called the sounds. Of the 504 occurrences of those, of those four words, do you know how many occur in the Psalms? 866. To which somebody will say, eh, yeah, but you know, the Psalms are the largest, it's the largest book in the Bible, and therefore I expect that kind of thing to happen and all of that. Well, excuse me, first of all, I agree with you, it's the largest book in the Bible, but it accounts for 8% of all the words in the Bible. The Psalms account for 8% of all the words in the Bible. Do you know how many percent it accounts for for the usage of those words? 33% appear in the experiential book of the Bible. What am I trying to tell you? If you are experiencing a gracious turnaround that we have been looking here, if you are trying to see God working us so that we can work the, uh, the, do the work of God, as we experience the gracious turnaround of God, you know what will happen? It will attract opposition. It will attract the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. We have enemies. But as we also have enemies, according to our dear sister, it's important to know that we have enemies on every side. But our dear sister, Victoria Orenze, tells us that I get back in. Turn to your neighbor and say, I get back in. I walk with God the Father, walk with God the Son, walk with God the Spirit. Three of them join. I get back in. Turn to your neighbor and say, I get back in. And so this today, what we want to learn is, yes, we do have enemies. But the most important thing is that despite the opposition of the enemies that are around us, we have a God that will always fight for us. And because that God is the one that rules forever, no matter what the enemy throws at us, we may be opposed, but we will never be defeated. And so today we're going to look at that. Because these people face the enemies. And how are we going to know how to handle the enemies in our lives? We're going to look at it under these three headings. Understanding the enemies, resisting the enemies, and defeating the enemies. Understanding the enemies, resisting the enemies, and defeating the enemies. Tell your neighbor, buckle your belt up. Let's start with the first one. Understanding the enemies. Again, I want to show you how we start. It says, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple of the Lord, God of Israel. The enemies heard. If you are a perceptive reading Jew at this time and you saw that, guess what? And when I say perceptive, you're a thinking Jew. When you saw that, you would not have been surprised. Why? Have you ever been caught up in a fight that you did not know you were part of? That the history of the fight happened 
before you got there. You went and you sided with the husband and then the wife starts attacking you one way. You didn't even know you were siding with him. You just said, oh, I think this is right. You were caught in a proxy war. But here's the thing. We Christians, we people of God, are caught in a proxy war. It started before we got here. We are part of it whether we like it or not. So when he reads this, he understands. Why? Because there is a long history of this. Of the enemies of the people of God. You see, when God created Adam and Eve, the first couple were already the first people of God. The people of God at the beginning were the couple, not the animals. And the moment we see that everything is hunky-dory, Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 3 verse 1, immediately we are told what? Now the serpent, animal again, you see the problem? Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, the God really said, first problem. There was a serpent, an arch enemy. The reason why we have enemies is because there is an arch enemy of God and we are the people of God. How do I know this now? This was the beginning of the Bible. Go to the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation gives us word pictures to be able to communicate to us things that we use too many words to describe. So Revelation can take some the whole history of the Bible and just give it to you in word picture. That's what it does in Revelation 12. Here it reveals to us who that enemy is, but different sides of the enemy. First of all, he's called the dragon, the great dragon. Which dragon? Ah, I thought it was a serpent. The great dragon, it shows that he's a destroyer, was held down. And now you know who the dragon is. The ancient what? So the one we met historically. But also he's not just that he's the devil. The Greek word diabolos from where we get diabolical. Which means he's the embodiment of evil. If God is the embodiment of good, here is the embodiment of evil. But he's also called the Satan. Right? It's not his name. It is a title. The adversary. So he's the adversary of God and therefore God's people. It says that he was hurled down to the earth and his angels with him. Meaning he's not alone as well. He too has backing. These angels are now what we call demons. Demonic spirits, right? Now, if you notice, we are hurled down. So we understand him. We understand that he has minions that do his work. This is the arch enemy of God. So when he shows up with Adam and Eve, he now causes them to sin. They fall from the estate that God has given them. Go to Genesis 3 verse 15. Then God then says something will happen. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. But then he moves it further. He said, and between your offspring and hers. So this was the beginning of a long line of the history of the battle between the serpent and the woman or the offspring of the serpent and the woman. Are you following? The offspring of the woman, the chosen offspring of the woman will be God's people. And then the adversarial uh, offspring of the enemy will be the ones fighting them. Are you following? So the first occurrence of this is immediately in Genesis 4. The woman had two sons. One was the son of the woman. The other was the son of the serpent. We know this by what happened. Cain was the son of the, of the serpent. And he, what he killed the son of the woman. But God raised up another son called Seth. And after, in the line of Seth comes Noah. In the line of Cain comes all the other peoples around. The people that were vexing Noah. The people that were persecuting Noah. God destroys them. But... Noah had three sons. One of them, the son of the woman who is called Shem. Another one, the son of the serpent who is called Ham. Ham gives birth to Canaan. Canaan is the father of all the Canaanites. And so then Shem now has through Shem, right? Noah through Shem comes the Israelites. And so you now start having battles between the Israelites and the people that come through Ham. So Egypt are what? The offspring of 
the serpent and Israel. So when they're fighting, that's a problem. The Philistines were also the offspring of the serpent. And when they're fighting, the problem. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, all of these is a long line of history. So that when you come to the time of Ezra, when you have the Samaritans, verse 2, verse 10, you understand that they have no problem seeing that this was the fulfillment of history. What about us? Go back to that Revelation 12, verse 13. It says this, Revelation 12, 13 says, When the dragon saw that he had been hurled down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Who is this woman? Well, you understand the woman by who she gave birth to. The male child was the Messiah. So before she gave birth to the male child, this woman who had, in Revelation 12, verse 1, she had a crown of 12 stars on her head. Before she gave birth to the Messiah, she is Israel from whom the Messiah came out from. Jesus was a Jew. After she gave birth to the Messiah and the child went up to the throne of heaven, the 12 stars now represent who? The 12 apostles. So whether it is the Old Testament people of God, Israel, or the New Testament people of God, the church, what it says about the dragon, did you see what it says? It said the dragon pursued the woman. Summarizing the biblical history. So we should not be surprised, just as the people who will have read this and said, Oh, they are enemies. They would have seen that. Now, I should mention that we also have internal enemies. It's something called the flesh. That's the reason why they got into exile in the first place. The reason why we, well, the internal enemy, the flesh, causes us to sin. Causes us to sin, and if we sin, that's really bad for us. Most of our big battles are with that. But that's not my topic today. We deal with that all the time. We are talking about external enemies. Now, notice what I said. This external means if you notice that it is more spiritual. It is spiritual, but works also in the natural. This is why Paul tells us that, see, in 2 Corinthians 10, in verse 3 or 4, he says, we, though we live in the world naturally, we do not wage war as the world does. So this is not a battle with guns and machetes. This is a different one. He said, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. In case you don't really understand, he tells you very much more explicitly in Ephesians 6 verse 12. For our struggle, our battle is not against flesh and so you don't look to a particular person and just say, my enemy. There is something working behind them. It's not against flesh and blood, but against what? Rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. Those are those fallen angels. And against the spiritual forces in heavenly realms. So the enemies of God, though they may be naturally, they may be manifested as people here in Samaritans, there is something demonically working behind that. Are we clear here so far? Now, if you have to deal with these enemies, you have to understand the working of the enemies. Understanding the working of the enemies, first thing you have to know is that the enemy works in diverse ways. One of the ways that the enemy works is through what we can call recurring deception. I'm not going to spend time on that again today, but let me just quickly show you in verse 2. It says, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the families and said, let us help you build. Ah. Because like you, we seek God and have been sacrificing to him. Imagine Satan is coming to tell you that, ah, let me help you build because me too, I'm worshipping God. Newsflash, Satan has never helped anybody before. Satan is not in the ministry of helping. In the realm of the spirit, there's only one spirit that is called the helper. It's not the satanic spirit. It's called the Holy Spirit. So this is deception. This is how we deceived Adam and Eve. 
That is one of the ways he uses. How must you meet that? Meet that with the word of God, with the truth of God. I'm not talking about that today. If you want to know more about that, I preached a message called Defeating Satanic Lies last year. You can find it on our podcast. That's not my attention today. My attention is another way the enemy works. And that we can call relentless frustration. Relentless frustration. Look at verse 5. He says, the bribed officials to walk against them and, say it, verse 5, the bribed officials to walk against them and do what? Frustrate their plans. He's into the business of frustration. But this frustration is relentless. It continues to happen over and over again. Some of us already know in our lives that certain things happen over and over and over again. Am I speaking to somebody here? You know somebody where the thing comes with an one intensity level, it comes again with another intensity level, relentlessly, but there's another part of that relentless thing we should think about, which is this. It's not just that it comes in intense and repeated manners. It can do so over generations. How do I know that? Now, let me show you. It has to do with the kings. Notice in verse 5, it says, well, let me even start with, uh, yeah, verse 5. The bride of to work against them and frustrate their plans when during the entire reign, the entire reign of King Cyrus of Persia and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Then after in verse 6, it says, at the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people. Verse 7, it says, and in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, they did something else. This is really important, so follow me closely. Up until now, as we've been reading the book of Ezra, from Ezra 1.1 to Ezra 4.5, you are following a chronological order of events. Ezra 1.1 to Ezra 4.5 is a chronological order of events. When you get to Ezra 4.6, all the way to Ezra 4.23, 4, there is a parenthesis. He shifts and he looks into the future of what was going to happen. He writes about what was going to happen decades later. How do we know that? We know that because of the kings. He's making that parenthesis to show you that what is happening in the current one that we have from Ezra 4, 1 to 5 is something that is going to repeat itself in the time to come. Is this clear? Let me show you how. Give me that table. For We will know this by the kings of Persia that are shown there. Now, these are the different kings of Persia at a certain period, okay? The first one, Cyrus the Great, Cambyses the second, Badia, Darius the Great, Xerxes one, Artaxerxes two. Let me tell you a few bits about them. These are their reign, the period of their reign. So they follow each other. So the first one, note, this is the Cyrus that gave the order for them to go back and rebuild. The Cyrus here in verse 3, right? It says, as Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us and for, and the, during the entire reign of Cyrus. Did you see that in verse 3 and verse 5? Okay, that's Cyrus the Great. Are we still following? All right. Second one, Cambyses, doesn't appear in the biblical record. We are going to ignore him. He just ruled for eight months, eight, eight years. This other one, we should just even know have him there. But there, he ruled for uh, you know, six months. Somebody, he didn't deal with the curses that were over his family. All right, now. Darius the Great now appears also. Now, go back to verse 5. Verse 5 says, the bri- they bribed the officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, the king of Persia, and down to Darius. So, go back to the table. So, that is Darius. So, yeah, go back to the table if you don't mind. Alright, so now you see where we are. So, why we said there is a parenthesis is that it now brings in the new two new kings. And those two new kings they occur after these other people. So the first is Xerxes, also known as Ahasuerus. That is Esther's husband. Remember Esther, the book of Esther. That's her husband. 
The second one is at Xerxes the first. This we will meet from Ezra 7. is the king from Ezra 7 and the entire book of Nehemiah. So, what we have read so far are the people that originally came. This is before Ezra comes. This is before Nehemiah comes. These are the first returnees of the exile. And they are doing their thing from when Darius, from Cyrus to Darius. Now, I put that table to show you something. And don't mistake it. The relentless nature of the enemy, you can take the table off, the relentless nature of the enemy is not just coming in a way to continue to hit you and hit you. Sometimes also, it spans generations. Somebody said, this was the wrong time for me to come to church. I'm a thinking person. Don't think too much that you become ignorant. Sometimes the enemy works relentlessly through generations. You see a pattern occurring in one generation, another pattern occurring in another generation, another pattern in another generation, and you want to just use science to explain it. My friend, wake up. And so what we see here is that this relentless frustration that is causing, he uses three methods. He uses bribery. He bribed, there was bribing, there was accusing, and then there was also lobbying. Bribing, accusing, and lobbying. Working in the natural things, but at the same time with demonic powers behind it. Let me show you the first one. Bribing. Can you imagine what he says? He says in verse 5 again, they bribe officials to work against them. For us, it may be bribery somewhere there, but it is really the sabotaging work that people do. And again, I'm not... Please, let me just quickly put a disclaimer. Sometimes we are the ones that do self-sabotaging work. I am not talking about that. I am not talking about when you are lazy. I'm not talking about when you are indisciplined. I'm not talking about that. That one, you need to another kind of prayer. Are you following me? But I am saying remove that. We have enemies. And so some of us, you know somebody where you are about to make, you have assured you that you are getting this job. Or they've assured you that you are about to make this next career move. And then somebody makes a phone call at the 11th hour and all of a sudden sabotages it. Okay, it happened the first time. But then one year later, it happens again. Five years later, it happens again. Ten years later, it happens again. You see a pattern and you just sleep and just say, this is coincidence. You better wake up. We have an enemy. The second one is this. Accusing. Notice what it says again in verse 6. At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged and what? Accusation. Now you see, it's just accusation. Do you think so? Satan is also called something else. In Revelation 12 verse 10, he's called something else. He's called the accuser of what? The brothers and sisters who accuses them, not in front of his demons, but accuses them before God day and night. Satan is not unemployed though. He has a day and a night job to continue to accuse the people of God. What are we talking about here? You are the kind of person, maybe you have sinned a particular sin, but you have become convicted on that sin. You confess that sin. You prayed against that sin. You know the teaching about forgiveness. You apply it to yourself. You can even teach people forgiveness. And yet, every time, for five years, you are still being accused of that sin. And you feel bad. And you think it is ordinary. You better wake up. There is an accuser that wants to debilitate us and not allow us to move on. You better wake up and fight. The accuser of the brethren. There is such a thing. We have enemies on. And the third one, he said, to change policy. That is what the whole of verse 7 to 16 
is all about. They wrote a letter to Artaxerxes, and because they wrote that letter to Artaxerxes, the guy eventually looks through the thing, and then from verse 16 to uh, from verse 17 to 22, he writes a letter back. And in that letter, eventually, when he says, Yes, they should stop it, verse 23, the people that supposedly wanted to help, they said that they compelled them by force to stop. There are policies sometimes. Again, listen, some people look and say, This this doesn't sound like me. I'm just trying to be biblical here. And let me not lie, some things me to my eyes I've seen before I was looking at certain things. And he said, No, this happens to people that are living in Akonjo or something, something. My friend, the devil does not care about your social class. He is very happy for you to be deceiving yourself that this kind of thing doesn't happen to me. I have sat in my office where people in Ikoi, people in Leki are telling me about diabolical things that are happening. We cannot keep quiet. Are you, are you following me? We will receive our deliverance today. So they've started to lobby. Listen, there are certain kind of decisions, lobbying decisions that are targeting the people of God. You say, but well, most of it, it affects everybody. Maybe I'll be controversial here because I think most of us will say that this is wrong. But the narrow policy of last year, I'm not talking about whether you can't change the money. I'm saying that must it be in that time. Do you know how many people lost their businesses? Do you know how many people died because they couldn't afford to go to the hospital because of that? Now, somebody said that affected all Nigerians. I agree. But sometimes the enemy does not care who he has to destroy to destroy the people of God. In the time of Moses, do you know how many babies died because the enemy was trying to get to Moses? In the time of Jesus, do you know how many babies that Herod killed just to be able to get to Jesus? The enemy does not care about the collateral damage that has to do with the people of God. If he needs to get to the people to get to you, he will try it. We must wake up. He is a deceiver. He is an accuser. He is a great dragon. He wants to destroy. Listen to me. I'm saying this because there are many people that are asleep. Paul says that we do not want to be outwitted by the enemy because we will not be ignorant of his schemes. For many of us who live in here, let me tell you where our complacency comes. We have made it in some ways, thank God. We are, we, are very, we are very, our work has taken us away. We've read so much and everything. And yet, for instance, maybe you've broken through a cycle of poverty. Thank God. You've broken through the middle class ceiling. Thank God. You're giving your children the best kind of life that you're giving them. You're sending them to best schools. Do you know the schools that are most targeted with drugs in this city? It is not the schools in the slums. It is the schools all around here. I live near a school where it is a drug center, where they're trying to sell to secondary school students. We must wake up. It is not just about educating your children and doing all these things. You must carry them. Pray the fire of God to garrison them. There is an enemy that does not sleep until he brings down the work of the people of God. Who is going to wake up this morning? The satanic attacks, they come relentlessly. They never stop. And part of our problem may be our complacency, which is part of the tactic of the enemy, so that he can get us. But as I said in the beginning, we're not trying to stoke fear. In fact, that's part of the thing that he wanted. He said in verse 4, he said they wanted to set out to destroy the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. That is not what we're going to do. Second point, resisting what? The enemies. Because Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse um, 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, he says, be alert and be of sober mind. Wake up. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand in the faith. 
Resist him. He says other believers, other believers are going through the same kind of suffering. Resist him. How can we resist him? Well, because sometimes these frustrations come and we feel helpless. Let me tell you something. The first thing that enables us to be able to resist him is a character quality that is needed for every person, whether you're a spiritual person or not, but there is a spiritual side to it. It is about building godly resilience. Somebody say building godly resilience. What is resilience? Resilience is the ability to withstand adversity and bounce back from difficult life events. The ability to withstand adversity. It comes. But you withstand it and then you are able to come back. You are able to bounce back from the difficult events, life events. Notice that these people, despite decades of opposition from Cyrus, from Cyrus to Xerxes to Artaxerxes, they kept building. Verse 12 says this. It says, in verse 12, we see that they're building. It says, the king should know that the people who came up from us, from you, have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding. Verse 21 tells us, now issue an order to stop this man from working. They constantly were building despite the opposition. How? What does that mean? The people were resilient. How? If I may just step out of the spiritual a little bit and just talk about resilience. Let's talk about it within a leadership structure. There's a lady called Janice Gere. And she's a, a corporate strategy expert. And she says, talking about resilience, she says, two of the biggest contributors to lack of resilience, right? Or stress is why a lot of people say they, 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 they are not resilient. Uh, resilient. So she says two of the biggest contributors to stress in people's lives, you know what they are? Uncertainty and lack of control. Uncertainty and lack of control. Now, I don't know about you. Me, I don't like uncertainty. I don't like uncertainty. If I'm in a relationship, I need to know. That's why I'm married. I know exactly where she stands. Where, uh, even where, you know, even back then, when we were in the world, I didn't like uncertainty. I need to know where we're going. Now, maybe I caused uncertainty for some people. But when I caused uncertainty for them, I was certain about the fact that I was setting up an uncertain thing. So it was uncertain for them, but it was certain for me. I hope you understand. I don't like uncertainty. Neither do you, because uncertainty... It's related to the second thing. When you have uncertainty, you lose a sense of control. Because now I'm not sure. Does she love me? Does she not love me? Does you know? Should I commit? Should I not commit? Should I list? Should I go out on a date with the other person or I not? Stop putting me in a place of uncertainty. Where are we going? Because once we lose certainty, we lose what control, and it is stressful to not have control over your life, isn't it? But it is worse in the place of suffering. When you are suffering and you don't have certainty about what is going on, then you now have a problem and say, what is causing this issue? Where will it end? I don't even know. That is what causes we may be suffering, but it now moves to depression. Are you following me? So what do we need in that place? What we need is the certainty that gains us control. Does that make sense? We need the certainty that gains us control. Then somebody has certainty in what? Oh, certainty in understanding the situation that we're going on, not true. Maybe sometimes, but most of the time it doesn't. You know why? Because sometimes if we understand what is making us suffer, it can put us into further depression. Because you will now understand it. You will now say, I am really powerless to be able to defeat this thing. When the thing is, if you find out that this is your business, why they keep changing the policy? The president is against you. 
Now you understand. But it don't finish for you. And then you say, ah, maybe it will end in four years. What if he wins the next year? It don't be. Just move away. And then they now take away your passport. You know, you understand. Sometimes, certainty about this situation does not help you. Because it just shows you how powerless you are. But second, you don't even know where it ends. So what do we need certainty about? Let us learn back from these people. Why were they resilient? They had certainty in something. What did they have certainty in? Remember, they were the exiles that had now returned. How did the exiles return? Somebody would say it was the policy of Cyrus. Yes, it was the policy of Cyrus, but it was according to the word of Jeremiah. It was prophecy that was shifting the policy. They had certainty in the God who controls all things, and they knew that they were his people. What you need is not certainty in understanding the situation. What you need is certainty in understanding your God. For it is those that know their God that will be strong and they will do exploits. So the first thing you must know is this before we enter into any battle. Who am I? I am a child of God. Who is God? Next question. He is the one that holds all things. Paul understood this. Paul talked to the people in 2 Corinthians. He said, I endured what happened to me in the region of Asia. He said the pressure was so much. He said that the suffering was, the troubles that we experienced were so much. He said that with the spirit of life itself. Can you imagine that kind of pressure? So how is it that Paul did not lose heart? <laughs> he didn't just understand God. He understood something about God. You see, it's not just good enough to know God. But you see, those that must come to God must just not believe that he exists, but that he has a certain character. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, Paul tells us this. He says, therefore, therefore, since through God's mercy, he said he is the merciful God. Since through God's mercy, we have this ministry, despite the fact that I am being battered on every side, I will not lose heart. I'm speaking to somebody here. I said that through the mercy of God, you can come out of that place. Through your certainty of the character of the God that backs you, you can bounce back. Paul said, because of this, because of this in verses 8 and verse 9, he said, I was battered everywhere. He said, he said we were hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. He said that, we were perplexed, but we are not in despair. Somebody is coming out of despair today. He said, because of this, I may have been persecuted, but not abandoned. He said, though I was struck down, I shall not be destroyed. For those that know their God shall be strong. Satan is a liar. I'm saying this because we are going to fight this morning. Because somebody else, there's something else you must remember. Is this. If you remember God, remember who you are too. Remember why you are a target. Somebody say, boy, I don't know why me, me. I'm just trying to mind my own business. I'm just trying to do so. Do one business. Why do I keep getting all of this? Why is it that nothing is happening to those people? It's happening to me. In the same way, these people could have said, we are so few. Why do these enemies keep coming? So you may be saying to yourself, why is it that these accusations still keep coming to me? I am but one person. But one person? One person? 
One person that belongs to the people of God. Do you know what one person can do? Hey God. Open the eyes of your people today. 190 years ago to yesterday. 190 years ago to yesterday. July 29, 1833. It's a very important day. Why? It was the passing of a great man. His name is William Wilberforce. Wilberforce, as a young guy, was very brilliant. He went to university at a very young age. By the age of 21, he had become a member of parliament in the British parliament. By member of parliament, he's not just ordinary senator or, or house of rep guy. Parliament in UK means it's really the governing place. So the ministers come from members of parliament. The prime minister comes, the head of government comes from member of parliament at 21. Don't you remember, so what were you doing at 21? Uh, don't worry, don't worry, sir. 21. But here's the thing he was born to Christian parents, and he himself was a Christian. By 28, he understood clearly what his call was to be in parliament. He said, I want to reform the manners of people in, in, in Britain, but there was a greater one, a terrible one. He said, I want to end slavery in all the British colonies. One man. He was naive. He was 28. What did he know? Satan said, eh? You want to end slavery? You know what Satan did? He started sending opposition everywhere. He wasn't seeing demonic manifestations, but he was seeing people over and about. They weary the guy, weary the guy, weary the guy. After four years, he was ready to give up. He was ready to give up. But there is a God that is in heaven that rules in the affairs of men. You will not know when God starts to orchestrate things. So, an old man, an 87-year-old man, at his last end of his life, decided, knowing what has happened, he decided to write to this 32-year-old. The man's name was John Wesley. John Wesley wrote this to William Wilberforce. He said this, Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. So he knew he was demonically motivated. He said, But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? He said, Oh, be of good cheer and don't be weary in well-doing. He said, I want you to continue to do everything that you can until slavery, not just in Britain, but in America. He said, The violence of the world under the until he was banished. Six days later, John Wesley died. Because he had accomplished what God had sent him to do. Do you know what that letter did for Wilberforce? The person that was ready to quit after four years. It took him another 42 years. In 16 years, slave trade was banished in Britain. In 42 years after that letter, what happened? It was banished in all the colonies. What can one person do? You better wake up. After it was banished, three days after it was banished, on June 26, 1833, it was banished. Three days after, Wilberforce died. Because he has served God in his own generation. In the name of Jesus, I pray concerning you. No opposition will stop you from serving God in your generation. What can one person do? It's not about one person. It is about the backing behind that person. I get back, you know. Do you know what it is for the God of creation? The Holy Trinity to be behind you. If he is for you, then there's nothing that can stand against you. May God grant you that godly resilience. Because when we have the resilience, then we can fight. Oh, remember, 
He started telling us about the time of Nehemiah and the time of Ezra. At this time, when the opposition was coming, they just kept on building. Because that's all they had. They had the resilience, but they did not have the power to fight. Nehemiah had read the script. He understood that this opposition will come again. In fact, the people that came in Nehemiah's time, 35 years later, they were the descendants. It was Samaritans again that came. I am not trying to say, listen, but I don't per se believe in ancestral spirits. I don't. Here's what I believe in. I believe in demonic forces working in and through authoritative ancestral connections to establish negative ancestral patterns. Should I say that again? Not ancestral spirits per se, but demonic forces working through ancestral, authoritative ancestral connections that eventually establishes a negative ancestral pattern. So you see this grandmother. The grandmother had a child out of wedlock. You see the daughter have a child out of wedlock. The daughter's daughter has a child out of wedlock. And you just say that it is social things that are concerning. There is a connection there. But the power of God is able to break it. Believe what I'm telling you. I will not lie. This person that is talking to you is not like I am frozen my brain intellectually. But I'm trying to open it according to what God said. I have seen things. And if you don't believe me, I can tell you my own personal testimony. For years as a child, there was a thing I battled with, battled with, battled with. As a youth, I battled with it. Eventually, into my adulthood, I was saying, God, take this away from me. God, take this away from me. Eventually, did. But one of the things I had seen was that it was in my father's generation. And it was also in my father's father's generation. So I was saying, God, take it away from me. And he did. And then, just a few years ago, I saw the offshoot, small offshoot, in one of my children. I said, well, in the name of Jesus, I said, don't worry. Go and sleep. This thing is not just an issue of talking. I scattered it in the spirit. I hope there is somebody hungry here. That the devil will not carry our children. If you see any pattern, do not just wait and just stand and just say, I will do nothing about it. It is those that know their God that can fight and do exploit. So Nehemiah faced the opposition again. But this time, when the opposition was coming against them, Nehemiah first prayed. Nehemiah said, oh God. He said, hear us, God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Somebody said, that sounds like revenge. No, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Is it not Proverbs 26 verse 27 that says, those that have dug a pit shall fall into it. She did not say that if they roll a stone up, it shall fall on them. I say concerning every spiritual enemy in your life, if they have dug a pit for you, that they shall fall into that pit. And after they did that, then Nehemiah 4 verse 15 says, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot. Remember, they wanted to frustrate them. But now they knew about the plot and that God had frustrated it. May God frustrate those who are trying to frustrate you. He said that we all return to the wall, each to our work. But they weren't just working. Listen to what he says. He says, those who carried materials did their work, one on one hand, and held a weapon in the other hand. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he walked. God is looking for an army that shall build his work. But they will also know how to war for his work. I pray that the Lord will make us a resilient people. That not just do the work of the Lord. But will fight against the enemies that are trying to bring it down. May God anoint you to be a resilient builder that fights. We have enemies. But we have backing as well. 
that somebody will say this. PF, I don't fight her. I've done a lot. Defeating the enemy. I've done a lot. But now, everything has come to a standstill. I have tried different ways. Everything has come to a standstill. This particular thing has come to a standstill in my life. Where was God in all of this? I quoted scriptures. I did this. I did that. But I've come to a standstill. Where was God? You see? You don't understand. My marriage isn't just sour. My marriage is bitter. He said, my depression is not just bad. My depression is debilitating. No, my debt is not just a lot. My debt is crippling. My spiritual life is not just low. It is on life support. It has come to a standstill. You see, the people here could understand what you are going through. Because in verse 24, it says, Thus, after this relentless opposition and frustration, it says, Thus, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill. Can I take it off? Take it off. Come, came to a, remove it, standstill. Where is God? Where is God? I did everything for that business not to crumble. I did everything to hold my marriage. I did everything for this child not to be like this. Where was God when everything came to a standstill? If you're like that kind of person that's coming here, can I tell you, I know for a certainty that God knows your situation and God is not absent. How do I know? Because wherever there's a standstill, God is always there. In fact, God was there. You just missed him in the text. He was there in the standstill. He was there contained in just one word that tells us in our standstill, no matter what we go through, that God will always be there in just one word. Can you put up that passage for me again? Let us read it together. The word that comes after standstill, put it up again. 4 verse 24. Thus, the work, let's read it together. Thus, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until. Let's read it again. Thus, the work of the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until. I didn't hear you loud enough. We are going to say it one more time. Thus, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until. Turn to your neighbor and say, wherever there is a standstill, there will always be an until. This is the narrative of all of scripture. I'll just show you. In one side, in Psalm 73, my favorite psalm, our confession is gone from that. The psalmist was befuddled with all that was going on. He said, why is it that the wicked they prosper? Look at my life. He said, in vain I have served God. What is the use of serving God? And so at some point he said, for all day long, in summary, I have been stricken. I have rebuked every morning. But when I thought, 
how to understand this. It seemed to be a wearisome task. I was weary. But somebody said that a change was coming. Why? Because he then says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. What were the people trying to build? They were building the temple of the Lord. If the temple of the Lord exists, then there will always be an until for your standstill. Then somebody says, until what? It's not until what, but until who? There's a time and there's a person. There's a time, there is a rain, and there's a person. It says, until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Or rather, until the second year of Darius, the king of Persia. What does that tell us? When it says until, it says that means that their captivity had continued, their opposition had continued until somebody stepped on the scene and until a certain time in that person. So when Darius comes, we don't read about that in chapter 4. We'll read about what happened with Darius in 5 and 6. But what we know at least with the until is that when Darius comes, the people will start, at least the opposition will go down. You know what happened in the second year of Darius? There was a rejoicing among the people. Their until had changed a time of weariness and it had brought a time of rest. Darius was a better king than Cyrus. He was a better king than Cambyses. And because when Daniel came, Darius came in, their until also came. But their until had an expiry date. We knew that. Because we read that 35 years after, in Xerxes' time, the opposition started again. In Artaxerxes' time, the opposition started again. Listen, as long as you look to any kind of king in this world, any other kind of diaries, your until will have an expiry date. Why? Because all kings of the earth have an expiry date as well. So we need a greater one than Darius. And that one came on the scene. He walked on the streets of Galilee. He went around always doing good. He said, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And he went on doing good, delivering people from the bondage of the enemy. Jesus saw a blind man and said, be healed. Jesus saw somebody with demons in them. He said, and let them come out. He spoke the word of God with authority. He caused havoc for Satan. Every deception of Satan, he met with truth. Every single thing Satan tried to do to catch him, he could not catch him until he caught him. He caught him. He caught him. In the same garden that Eve was deceived, he was caught. He was betrayed. He was taken to a mock trial. They accused him. All of a sudden, the one with power seemed powerless. He could do nothing. They accused him. He said nothing. He was charged. He could do nothing. He was flogged, bled, nothing. Satan had finally got him. What happens to him until? Maybe he would deliver at the right time. Maybe he would get. We, they still hope that he can rule from Jerusalem as we had hoped. That nothing will stop her until. No. He's walking on the cross of Cal- to Calvary. He even drops the cross. Somebody helps carry him. He's put on the cross. And he said, no, I'm sure. As the people said, let him come down. He was able to save others. I'm sure he can save himself. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed until the Son of God himself expired. 
so he's like, no, it's expired. The one we had hoped that will bring an eternal until for us has expired and so has our until with him. The second year of Darius, the 33rd year of Jesus, does it even really matter? All who starved, brought down from the cross, laid down in the tomb, Friday went, nothing. Saturday, oh, I can imagine how it was in darkness. They got him. They threw a party. They had their small jobs. They had everything. They were dancing. And they said, let's even do an overnight dance. And they danced from Saturday to Sunday until there was an announcement that an angel, two angels descended from heaven. And one sat on the stone that they said can never be rolled. And they rolled away. They thought they had got the son of God. They thought the until was to defeat him. But they did not know that there was another until that the one who was lying in the grave was coming back again. On the morning that he rose, all of heaven held his breath until that stone was moved for good. For the lamb had conquered death and the dead rose from their tombs and the angels stood in awe for the souls of all would come to the Father restored. Because Jesus did not lie captive, he came out of the grave. There was an until for the death of the Son of God that says that your until now will last forevermore. Have you not noticed that people only rejoiced in the second year of Darius? But now we no longer measure dates by Darius. You know why? Darius is dead. But because the Son of God rose again, time is now measured before Christ in BC. And what? AC? No. Why is it not AC and why is it AD? If it was AC, that meant that there was another king that came after Jesus Christ. But because he lives forevermore, we don't say AC. We say AD. What does AD mean? It means Anna Domini. But it is the short form for this. Anna Domini Nostril Jesu Christi. In the year of our Lord. In the year of our Lord. He came into the earth. By 2020, it is the year of our Lord. In 2023, it is the year of our Lord. And because this year is the year of our Lord, your until will never expire. There's one more until I want you to see. Because this Jesus rose from the dead and he's seated in heaven. What is he doing in heaven? This is the reversal of the until. Give me 1 Corinthians 15 verse 25. For he must reign. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his footstool. I came to tell somebody today, not by might, not by power, but by the spirit of God, because Jesus reigns, your enemies are coming under your feet. I said your enemies are coming under your feet. There is no opposition that will come against us that shall stand. Rise up to your feet and let us pray. Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, we hope you join us in the mission of renewing Lagos with the gospel by sharing it, rating this podcast and following us. These actions help us reach more people with the gospel. You can also connect with us on various social media platforms via the handle at City